Yes, welcome everyone. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's good to be back. Um, as many of you know, we were away for uh, 10 days on a trip. That's all I'll say about that. If you'd like more information about where we were and what we were doing, we'd, we'd uh, love to solicit all kinds of conversations. Uh, just to let you know, we will be uh, making an attempt uh, to go around to uh, the various city groups and uh, kind of show what we were what we were doing, some of the people that we met, and uh, yeah, just what what Jesus taught us on our trip. And the reason why we're not saying a whole lot is because this is being recorded, and we don't want uh, anyone to connect the dots to what we're doing. And so you will simply have to talk to us uh, personally if you want that. But believe me, we will talk your ear off if you ask questions. So be careful. You better have a good afternoon. Uh, and good vision if you want to see and hear what we were all about. But that aside, um, I'm excited for a lot of reasons. Um, number one, we're starting a new series. That's always a really exciting time for any preacher or pastor. And this particular uh, text, oh, that might have been the Holy Spirit. Uh, this particular text is a hot button topic, um, but I'm going to take an approach that is not hot button at all. In fact, it's very real. Uh, and that is that this is actually really about Jesus and his church and, and not really about marriage. Uh, the author then uses this example to say, okay, you can learn some things about marriage from this as well. But really, the, the metaphor is about Jesus and his church. And that's how we're starting the series. Our series, we're, we're calling it the household. We use that household language a lot around here. We use the word family we, use the we thought the household would be a good name. We talk about brothers and sisters. Um, you even heard, as Simon talked, the different dynamics of a family. Um, and so I think that's a really good, uh, it's a very good metaphor for us to use what we're, th this is the series that we're using to talk about what it means to be a member of this church, what it means to be involved in Urban Grace Church. And so over the next 10 weeks, we're going to talk about things that we do as a church, the reasons why we do them, how we do them. Um, it's not going to be fully definitive. You're not going to get everything you've ever needed to know about what the church is or what we do or why we have come to always those conclusions. But it really should set the course that at the end, we will have a, a membership covenant for you to sign to say, okay, I'm in. I'm going to covenant with you. And we want to, as a church leadership as well, covenant with you at the end of this series as well. And so this is our approach to kind of give you some information on what that looks like. And, and we, we've got to start with Jesus. We've got to start with Jesus. So today we're going to be talking about the church. But most importantly, I think we're going to, let, we're going to talk about who loves the church. And so each one of our series uh, titles or each one of our message titles is going to talk about um, a particular topic and this particular topic is really about who does actually love the church I thought about calling it who's in charge of the church but that doesn't capture it quite the way I wanted to now this word church is an interesting word you guys have all heard it said a number of times here this morning most likely your definitions of church involve something along the lines of a building Right? When you think of church, usually you think of building. Many people do. Some have said, oh, that's a, the church, uh, you're so lucky to not have a building. I said, well, try it for five or six years, and then you'll then come back to me and see how easy it is to gather as a church in a building. I love that Simon said, in our church building. 
It is a theater that other people use, but this is what we use to gather. Some have this idea that church is an organization. Some would probably think of church as kind of a business that, that is run by perhaps a CEO, someone who's really good at leadership, and so it, it runs more like a business. In fact, that would be perhaps your initial impression because we ask for money and we try to help people change people's lives and we offer a service, so to speak. But really, that's not the definition of the church at all according to the Bible. See, in the Bible, the word church is actually, it's the Greek word for ecclesia. I don't know Greek, but I know that hundreds of people have redefined this over and over again. And, and ecclesia is this word that simply means called out ones or, or holy ones. Some would say the word church actually exists very early in the story of God because it simply describes the gathered people of God. There's no building even involved in that. For There wasn't buildings in church gatherings for years, for centuries. And so it's amazing that church is so associated with the building. Now, many churches have buildings where they gather. Like many families have homes where they gather. But I would say this, it's important to get this right off the hop. Being going or being part of a church does not simply mean going to church it doesn't mean going to a service exclusively it doesn't even mean serving in a church exclusively being the church means being one of god's children but literally the church is god's called out one People that God has decided to be involved in His family. Some people have often said, this is an overused phrase, and so I apologize for using it again, but, but being, being a Christian, that is being a follower of Jesus Christ, some would say is kind of like you're, you're not a Christian just because you go to a church service. Just like you're not necessarily a car just because you're in a garage. Or if you're American, garage. If you're here this morning and you say, I'm a Christian because I show up to a service. That's not the definition of a Christian. It's not even the definition of being part of the church. The definition of being a Christian, the definition of being part of a church is someone who's literally called out by God to be one of his or her children. We've got to establish this right off the get-go because so many times we monitor our success as to whether we're involved in our church as to whether or not we show up to some particular place. Or we go and we do particular things. Well, I go and I sing and I pray and I read and so therefore I'm part of a church. No, that's actually not true. You're part of a church when you know you're one of Jesus' children. End of story. The reason why this is so important to understand is because everything that will follow comes from this. Because we monitor our success as Christians. We monitor our success as people usually by what we do. In this city, it's, it's crazy. 
I mean, you tell me, how long is it before you ask a total stranger what they do for a living? Isn't that the first question you usually ask? Hi, my name is Trev, I do this. We define so much of who we are by what we do, but the Bible does not determine who we are as a church by what we do. The Bible determines who we are as a church by what Jesus says about us. And so we've got to hear this. Now let me just say, I'm, I'm... I I love the Bible. I love Christianity. I love following Jesus. And for me, I have looked at a variety of different types and ways of understanding God and even different kinds of religions, and there's nothing that compels me like Christianity. There's nothing that compels me like Jesus. And in, in in the small amount that I've looked at the other ways of thinking spiritually, I've seen a a lot of you're defined by what you do rather than by who God has determined you are. And the Bible uses all kinds of different metaphors. So he says we're one of God's people. Even that, that the way I use that, God's one of God's children, that's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. There's a lot of metaphors that the Bible uses about church. One of the metaphors being a body, that we're a body. Uh, one of the metaphors is that... Um, we are a building. We're like a building that our foundation is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is very, he, he's very, he uses metaphors all the time to explain things. Sometimes I think he uses metaphors because they seem to have more impact. What's a metaphor, right? The English majors in the house will call me out on this one if I get it wrong. But a metaphor, I'm going to read it so that they can't do that. A metaphor is a thing regarded as representative or symbolic of something else, and usually something abstract. So something that is difficult to understand, rather than try and explain it in kind of point form, you use a metaphor that seems to help grab some impact. And so the Bible uses metaphors all the time. Jesus described himself metaphorically all the time. And every time that he describes himself metaphorically, he's also saying something about us. So, so are you with me? Jesus described himself as a king. So then what does that mean we are anyone yeah part of his kingdom subjects okay jesus describes himself as a shepherd what does that tell us we're dumb (laughs) we're sheep we need help we need someone who will guide us and lead us here's what's crazy this is the craziest metaphor of all jesus describes himself as the bridegroom what does that, what does that mean we are? Bride. Now that's a crazy idea. Because there's nothing that tugs on our heartstrings like talking about weddings. Am I right? Am I right or am I right? Okay, you, what's, what's the big celebrations in our society, in any society? I mean, even, even corrupt families like you seen the Godfather? Have you seen the, the, the huge family wedding they had? Like even in the most corrupt people, you'll have weddings as this huge, beautiful celebration. And this is what's, what I find so amazing is that Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom and the church is the bride. The called out ones, the gathered ones, those who he has saved, are not described just as subjects. They're not described just as stupid sheep. I'm thankful for that. But as his bride. And that has really captured my heart. 
it probably is no accident that God gave me three girls in my family where this stuff is talked about all the time. I always say I play for Team Estrogen in the Rye Savvy household. And so I'm very familiar with the bride stuff, the wedding stuff. We're already talking about weddings. We're in Banff, in the mountains. We're talking about doing a wedding in Banff one day. I was like, hold your horses. We've got a few years. But that's what's going on in my family. Why? Because that captures our hearts, doesn't it? I love it. So we're going to try and answer three questions today. Number one, why is the church referred to as the bride? Number two, what does Jesus do for his bride? And number three, what is expected of the bride? So the first one, why describe the church as a bride? And again, when, when Jesus says this, what he's doing is he's describing himself as the bridegroom. He's describing himself as the bridegroom. I know this, this sounds odd for some of us, especially if you're a man, and, and I can speak for men because I'm a man. But being referred to as a bride doesn't always capture my heart the same way, right? Am I, am I right or am I right on that one too? But, but here's, I don't want you to think of, he, he's not talking about you individual. Jesus isn't saying you're my girlfriend. He's saying the church, you, all of you, the church over the world is like my bride, okay? So don't get creeped out and don't be offended by that. It's actually a thing of beauty. And what, what, what is this about the bride that it's, that's so heartwarming? Well, it's playful, isn't it? It's kind of playful. You know, when you, talk, when you say, what is the church like? No one goes, oh, you know what grabs my heart is Jesus is CEO. No one says that. It's like, oh, Jesus is the leader of my army. It doesn't capture your heart. It tells you you've got to stay in line. What captures your heart? Jesus, this is my bride. It's my bride. So it's a sign of affection. It's a sign of affection. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 to 4, this is what it says. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. This is described, the people of God, the church is described as a new city. We love that image here too, this idea of a city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Who's been to a wedding? Anyone? There are, you're, you can include your own. You can include your own. Who hasn't been to a wedding? Okay, you've got some work to do. Weddings are beautiful. Okay, and there are certain moments in a wedding that are really important. Let me tell you about them here. This is a little bit of marriage counseling. So if you're ever thinking of getting married, this stuff is for free right now. Okay, there's few things that will bring tears to a man's eyes than to see for the first time his bride at the back of the building. I remember it like it was yesterday. Right, babe? She wore white. The long, long way. The sun was like blinding me because the way the building was built, it wasn't built for weddings. I stood up there and I was like, oh yeah. Yeah, tough Trevor. And she opened those doors and I went, Bleh. melted. I'm still weeping about it. 
fact, that's probably when I started weeping. And I remember the photographer actually caught my eyes when I saw her. And now I've noticed, because I've performed a number of different wedding ceremonies, and one of the first things I do is I see when the bride comes in, I look straight at the groom. And usually, if not always, even if that groom is an ice-cold personality, his lip will quiver. And there's something about that moment. When I saw my Leslie open those doors, it was like my whole life had come to a stop and all the emotions that I've ever felt about wanting to get married, wanting her, wanting to have a family, they all just kind of intensely came in in that moment. And guess what Jesus says heaven will be like? He says, when I see my church on that day, it will be as if she's walking in for the very first time, dressed in white, and he will have no other response other than to just burst into tears of joy. Now, doesn't that grab your heart? For those of you who are discouraged, like, oh, this is oh, such a, this church could use so much work. I, I'm with you there. I'm the pastor of this thing. I know that. But doesn't that help bring you out of your discouragement to go, this is how Jesus is going to view me and us and all our brokenness and all our complaints? He's going to see us at the back of the building and burst into tears of joy because his bride has arrived. The wedding day is here. I love it. I love this sign. I think it's terrific for us. What else is the bridegroom and the bride about? Well, it's a sign of faithfulness all throughout Scripture. Whenever God really wants to get across that he's, he's a faithful God, and he talks to his people, and they've been unfaithful, and he, he talks about how he is going to protect them and love them and always be there for them. He uses this image of, of husband and wife. This is what Isaiah the prophet said. Isaiah was a prophet who lived about four to 500 years uh, before Jesus actually showed up on earth. He said, for your maker, capital M, maker, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. The God of the whole earth is our husband, is our bridegroom. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off. If you've ever watched movies about a woman who's been rejected by her husband, they're awful, aren't they? They're terrible. And the only redemptive qualities is usually those movies have some man riding in on some sort of white stallion of some sort, metaphorically or, or not, to pick her up, to swoop her in his arms and say, I'm here. I'm here to take you. You're going to be my wife. It's a sign of this faithfulness. This is the Lord saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's why it's called a marriage covenant and not a marriage contract. It's because a marriage contract, a prenup, is a contract that says, when you do things that I don't like, I'm out. A marriage covenant is, says, when you do things that I don't like, I will be here for you. Through, I, I, I get it. I don't, I don't get people to say marriage suggestions. I ask people to say marriage vows for richer, for mostly for poorer. 
for better, for worse, sickness and in health. No one's impressed with a husband who, when his wife gets sick, leaves her and finds another new, young, pretty wife. Are you impressed with that kind of man? No, you're impressed with the kind of man who says, regardless of what happens to her body, regardless of what happens to her inside, regardless, I will love her through this all. Everyone loves that. And guess what? That's how Jesus describes himself. No matter how unfaithful you ever get, I will never be unfaithful to you, ever. I make this covenant with you. What else? The sign of what's to come. The sign of what's to come. The New Testament book of Mark records an encounter that Jesus had with some high-ranking official at the time. And these officials noticed that Jesus' followers at the time, he had gathered a bunch of followers, and they noticed that, that, that his followers didn't fast. Now that might not mean anything to you, but here's what it meant to them. Fasting was a way of saying, I'm really serious about my faith, Right? It's the equivalent of waking up at six every morning and praying for four or five hours. Okay? It, it shows people you're serious. So if you fast, you're like, I really want to hear from God. I really want to know God. I got to hear from God. And so Jesus' disciples were not fasting. And the, the, the lead officials were like, hey, wait a second. Are these people not that serious about hearing from God? And here's what Jesus said to them. He said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I'll I'll do you a favor. I'll translate this for you. Here's what this says. You don't fast at a wedding. I mean, do you ever go to a wedding and say, I hope I don't eat a thing? Okay? For those of you who have never been, I'm just giving you some tips here. Right? You don't go to a wedding to go, I'm going to eat as little. You go because it's like my chance to eat as much as I possibly can on someone else's dime. What do you, you don't go there to go, oh, I just, I hope I go to this wedding ceremony so I can finally get some peace and quiet to myself. No, you go to celebrate. There's singing. There's joy. There's crying. If you're a rice savvy, there's lots of crying. There's lots of food. There's great music. There's good stories. What do you do at a wedding feast? Well, you certainly don't pout. You certainly don't sit there and go, oh, while someone interviewing. You go, oh, this is so cool. I love this. This is great. Weddings in every culture are some of the best parties there are. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, when I am with my people, it's a party. How cool is that? Jesus did not describe heaven as like a war where a bunch of soldiers are going to stand in line and just salute their master. I mean, again, this wouldn't grab your heart. He said, actually, here's what heaven's like. She bursts through the door. I see my bride for the first time. Then we sit down. We have the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we eat and we eat and we eat and we eat. And we sing and we sing and we sing and we laugh. And we cry, and it's awesome. That's what he describes is coming for us. I'm saddened by some Christians who think heaven will be boring. That 
after we die, it gets less fun than here. Uh-uh. That's not how it's described as all, at all. Jesus actually said, when you party here, it's a little itty-bitty taste of what's going to happen one day. You ever have a party, you just don't want it to end? Just having such a good time? For some of you, depending on your conviction, there's wine. You're happy. You see old friends. You don't think about your business. You don't think about all the problems in your life. You just, ah, such a good party. That's what Jesus says it's going to be like. That's why I love this image of the bride. It gets better. What does Jesus do for the bride? Again, to use this imagery, no one's really impressed with a, with a husband who stands at the podium at the end of the night and he says, oh, I'm just so thankful for all the things my bride is going to do for me. You're a father-in-law, you're like, oh, bad mood. What are you impressed with? You're impressed with the bridegroom that sits there and says, here's what, here's what I want to do for my bride. I want to be her best friend. I want to make sure she's always provided for. I want to make sure that our family always has what it needs. I want to make sure I teach her everything that I possibly can. I want to make sure she knows she's loved and cherished. I, wanna, I want these kids that, that she bears to have just feel like they want to be part of the family. That's what we're impressed with. So think about it for a second. Like, and I hope you're picking this up. Like this is not a... This is not a sermon on what husbands should do, but husbands, do not miss this. Do not miss your opportunity to hear some good words, okay? That, that's for free. But what does Jesus do for his bride? Well, let's go through the list in Ephesians. First of all, he sacrificially loves her. He sacrificially loves her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. Here's the perfect opportunity to talk about the good news of Jesus. Why do you think Jesus came to this earth? To get a bunch of stuff from us? To make sure that we are really obedient? To make sure he had a bunch of people who had his name on, their, on everything that they do? No, he came to die for her. He gave himself up for her. All these great love stories, they almost always talk about someone who's willing to go to any length to love his woman. Am I right or am I right? Right? All of the great love stories. It's like, I love this woman so much that I would even die for her. And this is what Jesus does. He comes to this earth not to be served, but to serve. Not to get his feet washed, but to wash others' feet. Not to get a bunch of subjects, but to actually serve those people. He says, what do I need to do to make sure they know I love them? Well, what's the greatest sacrifice of all time? Death. It doesn't get any deeper than that. If you are willing to die for someone, that is an evidence of your, the depth of your love. What's the evidence of the depth of Jesus' love for you? Right there. His death. That's why he had to die. That's why there was no other way. 
That's why it's not morbid to talk about the death of Jesus Sunday after Sunday because it's not about blood and gore. It's about love. It's about the death of his love for you. The death of his sacrificial love. What does he do when he dies? Well, he does a number of things. He shows his love. He takes care of all the sins. He pays the penalty because his wife, if it's us, we've done so many things to mess this up. We've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. We've said he doesn't exist. We said what he's done doesn't really matter. Our culture really is not really paying attention. It's not that big of a deal. But he sacrificially gives himself up for her to pay for those sins to reconcile a relationship with God. So as it says in Revelation, my bride, that's so God can be with us. That's not just to accomplish a bunch of justice. There were other ways that God could have accomplished justice, but there was only one way that he could accomplish justice and love, and that was through sending himself to die for our sins in our place. And he says, all you have to do to receive relationship back with me is to believe that I am the great bridegroom. That's all I'm asking. Trust in me with all of your heart. Turn everything over to me. What else does he do? He sanctifies her. Some of you are like, well, that's a really big Bible word. It is. It is. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her. Sanctify just means to make more like. So this is what that saying is, that he loved her so much that he might make her more like him progressively over time. You ever watched a married couple that's been together for a long time? They either fight a lot or they're exactly the same. Have you noticed that? They use all the same words. They actually start to look the same. Have you noticed that, how odd that is? Like you actually like how do you guys look similar even? They do the same things, they eat at the same time, they finish each other's sentences. Sometimes they don't even one doesn't even need to talk, the other will finish the entire sentence for them. Not judging. This is what this means. Is that this is why Jesus died to make you more like him. So he said, What's the best gift I can give? Well, he knows it's him and his character, and so he says, I will make you more like me over time. I will make you more like me over time. This is why it's, it's a journey. This is why we battle sin. This is, why, this is why it takes a long time. But he does this so that he can make her more and more like him over and over again. It also means to make, eventually the end goal is to make pure. And so I know it happens these days, but but it still doesn't make quite as much sense to me. What color typically does the bride wear on her wedding day? White. Why? White is purity. Ultimate purity. It's a symbolic sign of purity. What is Jesus saying is, I want to sanctify you and clean you and make you white. I want to make you more like me so that you will be one day pure. No blemishes. No character defects. De- no character flaws. 
No garbage. As Simon would say, the junk is gone. That's his goal for you. That's his mission for you, is to make you like him so that one day you can be completely pure. And so when you stand before the maker of earth and the accuser says, hey, wait a second, that person used to be like this. And Jesus says, oh yeah, but I made them like me. So now they're covered in my blood. Now they're white as snow. Now they're completely pure. You don't touch my bride. I love it. You see how this image can just capture your heart? Emotionally? That it does something for us? How, what, is he, what else does he do? He cleans her up. She was eaten. Some brides shouldn't wear white. Right? Because they're not pure. And so there's a ways to go. And so he cleans her up. How does he clean her up? I love the way the Bible says it. He cleans her by the washing of water with the word. And so it, it kind of gives this intonation because there's baptism, but it's not the, the, the I got dunked today kind of baptism that, that's just there. It's so much deeper than that. It's like a spiritual baptism. And he washes her with the word. This is why we want you to be in the word. This is why we want you to hear the word. This is why we sing the word because you need to be washed by this to help purify you. This is what scrubs your soul clean, friends. That's why when you walk out of here often on Sunday and you hear it from the Lord, what do you feel? You feel good. You feel pure. You feel like, hey, somebody has scrubbed my conscience and my soul clean. Here are some of my favorite scriptures that scrub my soul clean that I need to hear. Nothing can separate us from his love. Do you need to hear that this morning? That scrub your soul? Nothing. I'm using the word nothing here. Nothing can separate us from his love. Romans 8 38 to 39. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation. Is there any exceptions there? No. No exceptions. will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody say amen to that. Nothing. You need to hear that word, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Not your sexual past, not your financial past, not your family past, not your drug past. None of your misconduct can separate you from the love of God. Nothing that's been in your past can separate you from the love of God. Have you heard that? Another one of my favorites. There is therefore now, oh, I went too fast, Matt. There's therefore now no condemnation. Can you put that up there, bro? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is this word that literally is used to, to accuse. The enemy uses this tactic all the time, condemns. 
You ever heard a voice in your head that said, you're not pretty enough? You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not tough enough. You're not courageous enough. You're not this enough. Fill in the blank. I don't care what it is. You've heard it. So have I. I'm not good enough. Those are words of condemnation. And here's what Jesus says. There isn't a word of condemnation from anyone who's in my family. Anyone who's part of my bride, there's no condemnation for them. People can scream all the things they want, but it won't stick. I have cleaned their souls, and I'm cleaning it day by day. And there is therefore, because of the work of Jesus, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's another one. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. I like the word fresh there. They're fresh every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Don't you just love that? If that does something to you, you should be encouraged. The Holy Spirit is at work in your life right now. If that sounds good to you. Mercy is new all the time. The depth of His grace, too full. Never ends. Every morning, daily. I feel the scrubbing already. I can hear the scrubbing going on. What about this one? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will save us. If we confess, Jesus, I have sinned. Jesus, I haven't done it right. Jesus, I need help. Jesus, I am sick. I need you. He is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. Do you know anyone else who's willing to do that? If you just confess it? After the 45th time of doing something over again, have you ever walked up to someone who you've like done something negative against? after the 10th time and said, hey, if I confess this, would you forgive me? They're like, hmm, I'd like to see some more proof, actually. Some of us, it's like twice it happens, and we're like, ooh, I don't know if I can trust this person. They sinned against me. What? I'm not sure I can. If you confess with your mouth that you are a sinner, Jesus says, every time I will forgive you. That doesn't even make sense sometimes. He nourishes her. He nourishes her. He gives her healthy food. He gives her instruction that is helpful, encouraging, convicting, empowering. He sent people. He sent communities. He sent the local expressions of his bride. That's what this is. This is the local expression of his bride that's meant to, to help you. He sent that for you. Some of you are like, nah, I, I wish he sent someone else. Hey, I do too. But this is what you got. So let's, let's be thankful for it. He sent this because of this, for this. He sent this community to help scrub you clean so that you could see Jesus again. Sometimes it happens in ways that we don't like and that are uncomfortable and are easy to complain about. And yeah, I, I will say this. Our experience in the last 10 days taught us we have it so good here, friends. We, we have it so good here. We are so not just wealthy, period, but we are spiritually wealthy. We have computer programs that tell us when to get up, what Bible to read, and how long we should read it. 
Some people don't have Bibles. We have a good. We have a good. And he sent that because he wants to nourish you. He wants to feed you. He wants to provide for you. So what does he expect of us? What does Jesus expect of us? Now, this is where we don't like this, and this is actually the first part. Well, this is what the instruction was, and, and so you can see a little bit. Wh- why do we believe what we believe about marriage? Is because we believe this is about Jesus. That's why. I know that may seem like a, a hot-button issue, but regardless of what you think of that, that's why we believe that. But we're not talking about this. This is why. So if we're the bride, what are we called to do? said submit submit we don't like that word at all except when it's tied to UFC then we love that word but even in that context what does that mean it means you win it means I'll follow you it means I will trust you This is what Jesus asked us to do. Trust him. Dig deep into your own heart and say, have I trusted Jesus to the point where I could say, I'm submitted to him. Remember, this is a process. But some of you, today is the day. Today is the day where Jesus is reaching into your heart and says, you have not submitted this heart to me. You say you have, but you haven't. And here's what I want to challenge you. What are you waiting for? Don't you see? Don't you see how wonderful this bridegroom is? Do you know anyone else who's willing to do these things for you? Even your spouse won't do these things for you. Not in the same way anyways. He calls us to submit. Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are Savior. Jesus, you are in charge. Jesus, it's your way. Jesus, I am not my own anymore. That has been the key theme for me in January. I have heard the Lord say to me over and over again, Jesus has said, you are not your own, Trev. And I've written it in my journal over and over again. I am not my own. I belong to Jesus. I follow Jesus. He leads my life. That's why it's so difficult, because it is an act of submission. Submission usually only comes into play when you disagree. Have you ever noticed that? You don't really submit to someone who you love and believe in. But sometimes we don't love and believe in Jesus and we need to submit and say, Lord, you're leading us here. Lastly, what does he say? What does he expect of his bride? He expects us to witness. You say, well, what do you, what do you mean? You mean like, I mean Witness. It's a good word. We need to unpack what it means. And I close with this. When Jesus, the last words Jesus said to his followers was not, now you're a soldier, go out and open up a can. He didn't say that. He didn't even say, you're a soldier in a great battle. He didn't say, you are sheep who really need a shepherd. He said, wait for the power from my Holy Spirit, so that you can be my witnesses. What's a witness? 
If you're not familiar with the law, a witness is someone who simply tells what they have experienced and seen with their own eyes. What's a false witness? Someone who talks about something that they never saw or experienced. What is Jesus asking you to be when he's asking you to be a witness? He's saying, tell people when they ask you what he has done in your life. I'll translate this and apply this for us. What is Jesus asking us to do today as his bride? He's saying, let's talk about the bridegroom. Shall we? Let's share with others how our Savior is really great. Let's tell people, hey, I've tried a lot of other things, but there's nothing There's no one that can give me what Jesus has promised to give me. There's no one that can wipe away my sin. There's no one that can deal with my guilt. There's no one that can give me hope for a future. There's no one who can piece together relationships. There's no one who can free me from the pain of my relationships. There's no one who can save me from my shame but Jesus. That's all that means. He's not saying take a class where you can learn how to be a proper witness. It's not like those shows that we see on TV where you prep the witness to say things just right. He's saying just talk openly about what I've done for you and you'll be fine. And you'll be fine. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We're actually officially the end of the earth, by the way. Well, Jesus was talking about us here. He wasn't talking about newly converted Jews. He wasn't talking about Samaritans. He was talking about us. And I don't know about you, but I need that power. Because tomorrow I will face a world that does not want to hear my witness. I will face a world that empirically says, ah, that, see, that doesn't really exist like that anymore. We're beyond that. And I don't know about you, but I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life to speak clearly and say what I need to say, not simply from up here. I believe saying it here is a lot easier than saying it on the street and in your job and in your family and in your marriage. And so you likely need the Holy Spirit's power too to do this. And so today as we celebrate the family meal, here's what I want us to do. I want us to ask for that power. I want us to say, Jesus, I have tried in my own power to talk about you. What I really need is your power in me to talk about you. Jesus, I need you to fill me so full of this image of you as my great bridegroom that it simply is impossible for me not to talk about you we have an opportunity to ask for that we sing and the way we design our services at least we try to as we say we want to proclaim some truth but then we want to give you a chance to respond and so when you sing this is a way of you proclaiming what you believe and when you come forward and you partake of this little symbolic thing we call the lord's table it's a way for you to proclaim what you believe so you heard me proclaim that Jesus is Lord and Savior. You heard me proclaim that Jesus is the great bridegroom. Now I want to invite you to proclaim it. I want you to say it. And that's why we don't take this lightly. If you don't believe that, friend, do not come up here. You are lying about your life when you do that. But if you do believe it, you better not pout on your way up here. 
you confess your sins. You come up and you say, I have confessed my sins. I am right with God. I'm being scrubbed clean. I've got a great bridegroom who's taking care of me. You want to know the proof of that? Symbolized in his flesh and his blood. He came to this earth. He died for your sins. That's the bread and the wine together. And so, Julie, would you come up and lead us again as we proclaim together the goodness of Jesus our Lord? Let's pray as they come. Jesus, I, you know this has captured my heart. You know what this means to me, and I'm praying, Jesus, that this is just not my emotion today, but that you have come in power to our church family to ravish us with your beauty to strip away our pride and accept this great metaphor that you've given to us called I am preparing a bride so that one day when she walks in the back doors of heaven, I will shout for joy, I will weep for joy, I will celebrate, and there won't be enough time in history to enjoy my bride. Jesus, for those of us who are struggling through this and saying, are you sure? Are you sure, Jesus, you could take me and be one of your family? Are you sure you could scrub me clean? Are you sure you could nourish me? Are you sure this is for me? Jesus, would your Holy Spirit come upon them so that they know today they're one of your children, they're one of your family, they are your bride. Jesus, would you do that for the sake of your glory?